I'm, I'm happy to be back in Esther as a short little break as Pastor Dan gets started on a series in the attributes of God. Incredibly important uh, as we talk about uh, even the Calvin Club and just again a deeper understanding of the God we serve. Understanding who God is in His essence and His attributes is incredibly important for us and uh, very, very practical to our lives. I'm looking forward to the development of that as well, but I'm also happy to be back with you in the book of Esther. When we were talking in the session um, on preaching through Esther, the estimation was somewhere around 10 sermons. Uh, we're well past that, I think, and we're in chapter 4. So the estimation was a little bit off, but hopefully we're growing through our time uh, and spending it well in the book of Esther. Where we left off, as was just read for you, we'll jump into in just a moment, but as was, was uh, where we left off, we left off with Mordecai's response in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Mordecai's response is devastating news of the king's edict. That's where we were the last time we were together considering the developing character of Mordecai. We're going to track with Mordecai through the rest of the book also, but there's going to be a little bit of a, 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 a focus as we look at the book this morning. Mordecai is an interesting character, and we do well to pay attention to see how we also uh, are like Mordecai in many ways. Uh, as we consider Mordecai and his response to the king's edict, we then have the, what is not completely contrasting, but generally, yeah, contrasting response to the edict um, by the church of immaturity or the church under the Old Covenant, you see their responses are a little bit different. Notice, if you will, just by memory, as we consider uh, the response today uh, from Esther regarding this event. But look at the event itself. As you recall, uh, when Mordecai learned about the coming annihilation of the Jews, uh, the, the king's edict, and I'll just cite for you once again to understand the gravity of the situation, under Persian law, uh, once the signet ring and, and the law is written and the edict is published, there's no walking it back. Um, and and that, that, we know that all the way back to Vashti at the beginning of the book. Everything is so consistently written across the book of Esther, as so also the text of other books in Holy Scripture. But it's so consistently a presentation that leads us to conclusion. Um, Mordecai realizes that it's a done deal. The fate of the Jewish nation is now sealed within the Persian Empire. Mordecai's response is to tear his clothes. Again, a very Old Testament imagery that everyone is familiar with. The tearing of clothes, the shaving of head, the dust, pla- the, the dust and ash, the sackcloth apparel. People are familiar with that. Mordecai tore his clothes. And so the response isn't all that uh, shocking or surprising. He then put on sackcloth and ash. And then look at his activity uh, toward the end uh, of verse 1. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. That was as we track Mordecai's response. Shortly following after is the response of the people of God corporately, again, in Susa, the capital city, but more broadly across the empire. Notice the distinction. There was a great mourning, and I'm looking, drop down into verse 3 toward the end of verse 3. There was great mourning among the Jews. And, and yet, you notice the author is trying to draw you, again, not a hard contrast, but a compare and contrast between Mordecai's behavior and that of the Jews in general. 
who perhaps at this point is the track of development of Mordecai's character have not thought to be members of the, uh, of the administration in person for Mordecai has. Mordecai goes by Mordecai in Babylonian name. He tears his clothes and, and he is in mourning. The Jews, as the people of God, they respond with similar great distress and great mourning with fasting. And lamentation. Again, a distinction there between the people of God and Mordecai in contrast. The people of God pivot towards fasting and prayer. Mordecai makes a public spectacle and he heads towards the king's gate. Again, this very um, public outcry, which no doubt would be hard to miss, and the mournful demonstration of those all across Susa, the capital city uh, there of the Persian Empire, comes to the attention of the queen. You notice, and that's where we pick up with Jim, just read for you just a moment ago, when Esther, verse 4, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs, um, when they came and told her, and, and, and here the author highlights the role and office of Esther going forward. The significance of this moment, the queen was deeply distressed. Now, again, when we read of Esther, the queen's response to her servant telling her, uh, hey, by the way, Susa is in total meltdown. And um, Mordecai himself is outside the king's gate and he is in total meltdown. This was, as I mentioned to you before, and you tracked the actions earlier in the text, this was Mordecai's purpose all along. That this is the movement that Mordecai has in plan, is to go to the king's gate in the first place. That was the contrast between Mordecai's activity, crossing, as it were, in the physical and in the tangible. Turn this thing around. Again, any of us would do that. That's why I encourage you to understand the similarities between your own instincts and that of Mordecai. You might be like, well, Mordecai's your great more. Mordecai's your... Sure, yes, true. But it's not to look down upon Mordecai. You realize that's the text for you. You too. And set up against such high circumstances. What is your reflexive move? To pray or to run to the person you think can effectually change it here and now, right away, fix this problem that, that, that's the lamenting and the fasting and the weeping. One is running to the king's gate making a public spectacle. His strategy is working. He wanted, by going to the king's gate reflexively, he wanted to get Esther's attention immediately. You have to do something about that. And as you see then, his strategy is working because the young women and her eunuchs, those of the king's court, uh, they see this spectacle that they hear the weeping in the morning and they see what would be Mordecai. Um, and so, again, their response then is to go and tell the queen. Mordecai's actions and those of the Jewish people across the city of Susa come to the attention of the queen. Now, <clears throat> at this point in the text, Esther obviously knows something very serious has occurred. You can jump back up in the text from whether it's Mordecai's activity or it's verse 3. And in every province, 
And, and just exhaustively, I know for you, once again, I, I hope not to wear you out with this, but there's 127 provinces. So, so the, the detail is for you to understand, this is exhaustively devastating. Every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning. So Esther, again, is now told by those of her own court who attend her, and she knows that something very serious has occurred. I want you to be careful in noticing her initial response. Again, I draw your attention to the detail of the text. As we see the same thing with Mordecai, and as we now see the same thing with Esther, let me piece it together for you as you see her initial response as well. Look at verse 2. Mordecai, that is, he went up to the entrance of the king's gate. He knows this, and now we're told this portion. No one's allowed to enter when you look like that. So he makes this scene. Verse 4, it's then told to Esther by those who go out within, come and go within the court. They came and told her. Told her what? Number verse 2. Mordecai is outside the entrance of the king's gate. The queen then, in response to what? Mordecai being outside the king's gate in sackcloth and ash. What is her response? She's deeply distressed. How do we know it's it, it centered on Mordecai's activity? And that she doesn't just at broad strokes mourning the edict in total. Because look at her initial response once again. She sent garments Both Mordecai. Mordecai's at the gate, says the young women in the unit. The queen is deeply distressed by Mordecai being at the gate in, in, in disarray. What should we do about this situation? I know, we'll send garments to clothe Mordecai. Why? So that he might take off his sackcloth. Why are we sending sackcloth or clothing and garments to Mordecai to immediately change the clothing that he is wearing at the king's gate? I think for two reasons I'll provide them to you and think with me along these lines. I think we can contemplate two reasons why reflexively she heard about what? Susa, no, Mordecai. And being deeply distressed about the situation Mordecai did what? Thought of Susa, no, thought of Mordecai. Doing what? Giving him clothes. Put on these clothes. Why? I think for two reasons. Number one, she loves Mordecai. We have no reason to believe anything different other than she absolutely does love Mordecai. Her uncle who raised him uh, loved him. Uh, we have evidence of that earlier in the book, at least at minimum, twofold, where he tells her how to behave herself in Sion. We find out that she doesn't do it just for herself, also does it explicitly in the text says in chapter 2 to obey Mordecai. Now again, how to read like exactly is it like in my best interest here and he is giving me the best information for our success together in the Persian Empire administration, maybe. But what it does single out is he defers to Mordecai. I'll add to that 
how when Mordecai uh, performed that task for the sake of the kingdom to deliver the Persian king Ahasuerus from the assassination plot, remember, Esther put his single herself out. She's the only one that communicated the information to the king. She told it on behalf of Mordecai. She loved him. Meaning, fear, she sends him clothing, number one, because she loves Mordecai and is concerned about his very public display, bringing him very negative attention to himself. Again, you note that in the text that you're not allowed to go up to the king's gate or enter into the king's gate, the administrative wing of the Persian Empire, when you're dressed uh, in, in mournful attire. The, the king is hand gesturing it away. It, it, it's not to be done. Uh, she's distressed about Mordecai as a man, and she's distressed about the negative attention that could be coming to Mordecai very quickly if he doesn't get some disclosure. Number two, number one, she loves Mordecai, but number two, if the situation with Mordecai persists, it could bring her negative attention as well. So indeed, she loves Mordecai. But as we have seen since the beginning of the book, it's not the story of Esther is not straight, clean, cut line. There's ambiguity, and you're left as a student of the text to follow the text and piece together what clearly is being presented within the text. And there's just some levels of ambiguity within the story of Esther. But I don't think that's odd because I think that seems very human. There's ambiguity often in all of us. Um, motives are hard to judge. The return I get from this, am I even doing this really? It is my advantage, but it's, like, it's hard to carve. So also with Esther, if Mordecai continues his behavior and it brings him negative attention, that implies down the road when Mordecai gets in trouble, because he indeed does love him, it will at some point be trouble for him. She will be involved in Mordecai's mess. So, the best thing at this point for Esther, and really if Esther considers it, the best thing for everyone, is to have this situation go away. And to have this situation go away quickly. That is why, when she hears and is distressed, she simply sends him and leaves him. This needs to be dealt with. One commentator clarifies it this way. He says, the meaning and cause of Mordecai's behavior does not seem to have mattered to her. Let me just cite that for you again. The meaning and cause of Mordecai's behavior does not seem to have mattered to her. If she could have gotten rid of this unpleasantness, that would have been enough. Now, with Mordecai's rejection of the clothing, and you see that there, Mordecai senses this same thing. Um, there's a real problem here for me, for you, and for all of God's people here within the Persian Empire. There's a real problem. Don't send me clothes. You notice this is the issue Mordecai perceives as well. He doesn't like that it's a, a quick change of clothes and everything will just go away and all this unpleasantness will be dealt with. 
Notice Mordecai sends the message directly back to the queen. At the very end of verse 4, his response to her acting deeply distressed by showing it simply by sending him clothes, he will not accept them. I don't want different clothes. I want you to understand what is taking place. It now, for Mordecai, right, he, he, he is the one that got everyone in this situation. He's also the one that counseled all along, don't bring it up. But he found himself in a really difficult spot to turn it. So what Mordecai has been seeking to bury long term for the better working ability of himself and his family within the administration is to do not tell anyone about your people. He found himself in a sticky situation with Haman, you recall, if you recall, and now the bearing is on Mordecai. Now he's switching over to tell Esther, hey, go send me clothes. You better understand what's at stake. It's a real reversal in the way that Mordecai now wants Esther to act on behalf of God's people, when before he just wanted it to be quiet. So now, Mordecai's rejection of the clothes, Esther is forced to inquire, not simply about the form of the problem. Why is everybody crying? What's all going on? How can we fix the clothing? How can we change this sackcloth and ash, this position around here? How can we make this kind of just, everybody go back to work? And nothing to see here. How can we do that? She can't do that. Mordecai won't let her. So now she has to inquire further about the substance of the problem. Notice then how she does so in verse 5 through 8. So word comes back, then Esther uh, called for Hathak, one of the king's units who had been appointed to attend to her. And we know that from chapter 1, she received numerous workers when she was brought into the harem. So one of the top-notch individuals, Hathak, who had been appointed to her team who, uh, to attend to her and ordered him to go to Mordecai. Go over there to learn what this was and why it was. Find out the substance of the problem. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city, in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him three things. You know them within the text. Number one, he told Hathak as he came to inquire about the substance of the problem, number one, all that had happened to him. Note that very carefully about Mordecai. Mordecai mentions all that had happened directly to him. He strengthens the situation its severity by explaining the exact, the text says, the exact sum of money that Haman promised to give into the king's treasury. Number two, he tells her, or tells Hathak, who then goes to tell Esther, of the destruction of the Jewish people. Remember, all along, Mordecai's position is then, don't bring that up. But now he is changing his tune. And verse 8, you notice the third piece, Mordecai even gives him a copy of the written decree. And he commands Hatha to take the decree, and you notice the verbs in there, uh, show it to Esther, explain it to her, and then command her to go to the king. 
Vegas Davis continue with him on behalf of notice how he says a person. First spot in transition from no law, do not tell anyone. Goes from zero to a hundred. Go and tell the people directly about your people. Again, for Mordecai now, the situation is much more severe. Mordecai in explaining to Hathak is not simply the broad strokes of the king's edict. There's going to be a lot of bloodshed and a lot of trauma in the Persian Empire, in all 127 provinces. No, he more particularly explains how he himself is personally enmeshed in it. He is relying upon what we have said before with the close of the pain. He's relying on Esther's love. This isn't just people we don't know, Esther. I'm personally enmeshed in it. When you think about how Esther was sequestered away from just everyday, ordinary items as being a part of this king's uh, uh, harem, here, probably is not aware, clearly uh, is not aware of the promotion that never came to Mordecai. At the, at the end, you recall, the last thing we know about Esther and her knowledge of Mordecai in verse 22 of chapter 2, and I mentioned to you a moment ago, Queen Esther, Esther told the king, and she did it how? In her uncle's name. Why? Because he was to be honored for his bravery. Uh, you know that because it is also, he, he didn't get the accolades that he should have gotten. The two men were punished in verse 23. And yet it was that it was recorded by providence. It was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So Mordecai got uh, a notation within the annals of history that are permanent within the Persian Empire. There's a man named Mordecai who revealed an assassination attempt against King Hexaverus. And, um, but, the, but the due honor for his bravery never came. And then you remember, uh, not only that, but his providence often is in a general rule that we all need to wrestle with as we conceive of it. It's, it, it's not like gravity, but it's, but it's more like, uh, I don't know what I could draw the comparison, uh, just pattern. And that pattern is that oftentimes within providential hardship, things get worse before they get better. Many of you in here know this. And it's because it's kind of proverbial. So also with Mordecai. He got kicked over, and then Haman, his enemy, got promoted above him. Then he's telling Esther all of this. Um, hey, Pat, you have to go tell Esther this situation. And you notice carefully in the text all that happened to him. There was a situation that Haman was promoted. Then it became this thing where we all within the administration had to bow down to him and show honor to him. And you just need to know I didn't. And I wouldn't. And I know for years I told you, don't tell anyone about your people. But I myself could not bow down to an the moral enemy of our people. I refuse to do it. So it's not an edict that goes out that everyone's going to be devastated except you and except me. I am enmeshed in this. And there's a 10,000 sum of silver being offered 
into the king's treasury and the annihilation of our people because of my life. There is no new set of clothes between the two that is going to move this new world. You must act. Notice then, as he receives of the information, notice how Hathak relates the desperation and the desperate message to Esther, beginning in verse 9. Hathak went, okay, so he received the information, the imperative from Mordecai. Show it, explain it, and command her to ask. Hathak then went, told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants, tell this to Mordecai, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces. Notice the use of the universal inclusive all. There is no one who escapes this. Do you understand what I mean? All of the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes to the king inside dinner court without being called, there is but one singular law to be put to death. How do we get around that? Well, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter. You see, but you don't know that until after the fact that you have now entered. If he holds out the golden scepter, that you may live. But let me clarify, and make sure you tell uh, Mordecai this for me. As for me, in the all and every, let him understand the force. As for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So you see what Esther said? There's an all and every universal application of Persian law. You're dead. Unless, afterward, you find out he may let you live. And if that applies to everyone in all places, let me remind you, Mordecai, as you command and show and explain to me, let me explain to you. I have not been called. You see, you're asking me, Mordecai, to put my life on the line. A life which I have hidden ever since I have You see, even upon Hathak's further showing, explaining, and commanding, Esther has no desire to take her life into her own hands by approaching the king unhealed. There's no desire. You can read that text again and again and again, and you can, you can see exactly she still feels as Mordecai has instructed in chapter 1. I still feel the same way. That, that, that there, there's no purpose or utility right now to simply walk in there and tell him, who are my people? I haven't been sung. I haven't been called. I, 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 I think we, we stick with plan one. We're both better off just not saying it. You see, she has no desire to take her life into her own hands by approaching the king unbidden. But Mordecai is saying, now is the time for you to tell of your Jewishness. Your people need you. Esther's response, in short, if I could paraphrase, would simply be something along the lines of Mordecai, I don't think you understand what you are saying. That's why she cites, don't you, as in all and every, he is a man within the administration. He knows Persian law. 
he knew he was supposed to be promoted. He knew he was supposed to receive honor, and he didn't. And it's not like he doesn't understand. And Esther is urging him, then act like it. All people in every class. And with this initial reply, we arrive at the crisis point of the entire book. From this point forward, in character development and story and application, we're going to see, finally, why the book is entitled Esther. Uh, perhaps up to this point, you would have thought, well, a better title for this book is really Mordecai. We have talked about him and talked about him and talked about him. I thought the story is about Esther. And right now, at this crisis point, we will learn why the book, indeed, is entitled Esther. And I want to encourage you to think along these same lines as we just think for a couple more minutes together. And that is, think of Esther and think of yourself, as I would think of myself as well in light of providential happiness. Consider this just for a moment. Esther, as you see within the text, is forced by providential circumstances outside of her control into making life-defining decisions. Think about yourself. Fill in your own blank and think of the, how you are an individual who, are, who is subject to providential happenings that are outside of your control. Oftentimes we think we have control or we're in control and we get frustrated we're not in control. Here's one of those moments where Mordecai realizes he is not. Here's a moment where Esther realizes she is not. Now is a good time for us to repent and recognize neither are we. Esther is forced by circumstances outside of her control into making life-defining decisions. Now, again, the author has led us toward this climactic and what we would call an identity crisis for her all the way along. The question of the, for the reader at this moment is, who is Esther? Will Esther admit, indeed, proudly say, I am a member of God's covenant people? Will she, at this moment of courage, stand for what matters most? Again, if you were not as familiar with the story as you are, and you're reading this for the first time, it would strike you deeply. What will Esther do? It's a terribly difficult situation. Again, I mentioned to you that the author has prepared you for this identity crisis within Esther, and I'll simply state five ways, but I won't develop them. I am going to move forward quite quickly. Number one... You remember, because right now you're thinking, oh my goodness, this is a, a major moment for Esther. She's putting it back on Mordecai. And her initial response is, no, 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 We've all said a law. We're not going to share who our people are. Don't come to me now. Like, but, 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 what, what, we don't understand what would become of me. And we know this must have been incredibly difficult. We might read the story otherwise and think, She's a heroine and with unknown courage and just immediately jumps to the moment. No, 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 no. You remember, the writer has led us down the road where this would be a very unpleasant and difficult time for Esther because you remember she was raised distinctly Jewish. Her name is Hadassah. You forget that because we go by the common name of her Persian name, Esther. She was raised Hadassah. The author is laying the groundwork for where this will come home to roost down here in a massive way. But she was without mother and father at some point, and Mordecai took her in under his wing. As she loved him, so he loved her. 
no denying it as we look at the way that Mordecai cares for her. Um, but you also notice somewhere under Mordecai's leadership, he puts a name after it. Mordecai, as we track him as a character through the story, he is, in obvious ways, I would submit to you, less interested in the Jewish people. Um, again, I, I think there's parallelism to the way that we all live our own lives. Um, assimilation is the word we use so far. Mordecai, he is living kind of his best secular life now. He has a job within the Persian Empire and um, the administration, and for all of its hiccups, it is otherwise going well, other than this massive problem now Thirdly, we notice that Mordecai now, secondly, Mordecai is more along the lines of the Persian Empire. He's Jewish, but he, he's like, let's just, you know, he's dead. Uh, uh, he took on Esther, uh, Hadassah, and she becomes Esther. Thirdly, uh, she wins favor and advances within the kingdom administration herself. You remember that in chapter 2. Uh, she fell under pagan influence. I, I don't know. Again, maybe you could read the text somewhat differently, but I, I think you're challenged to do so. And when you look at the verbs that are used within the text of chapter 2, verse 15, she found favor there. And it didn't come by happenstance. It came by effort. She advanced within the harem, and it was paid off. She became queen. For um, the growing thing for years is her silentness about her Jewishness, which would make it really hard now then to all of a sudden own it all. All of the consequence that comes with it. All of the burden of saving an entire people group when she's lived as a secularist in the Persian Empire for quite some time. Finally, though, again, Mordecai it's not, it's not Esther who has come to the limit. It is Mordecai. And he told her that. The first thing Esther needs to know is it's not a bunch of unnamed, unknown people. It's the He told Kasich everything that happened to her. And now Mordecai feels that it's only right for you, Esther, to flip the switch, admit your Jewishness to the king and save the nation. Well, Mordecai, for you, I, I haven't mentioned this, and I've lived as a secularist amongst the Persian before. You see, I want to close with you thinking along these lines, circumstances over which Esther has absolutely no control are requiring her to demonstrate, yes, political, but more so heroic moral. One commentator concludes it this way, to save her people, just so you understand the gravity of the situation as we draw to a conclusion, to save her people would mean revealing her own identity as a Jew. And again, maybe we think, oh, that's not that big of a deal. Remember this either. It doesn't matter who they are or where you find them. They are to be eliminated. Further, he writes, she would be admitting that she had not been living as a devout Jew could live. Furthermore, she would be identifying herself as a target of destruction under Haman's decree and an easy mark in the treacherous Persian court. This is why she just 
times to remind Mordecai of the severity of the situation. In conclusion, as we consider and meditate on this text, let me ask this closing question, provide a brief answer, and move to prayer. Think about this now, about providence outside of your control, which is all of life, even though we kind of think it's not. It is. Life is outside of our control. Esther found out life and circumstances are outside of her control, and now she's forced into this difficult, extremely difficult situation. Let me ask you this. What is your capacity for moral courage when facing personal risk? Think on that just for a moment, because you think, you think circumstances outside your control, a deadline that comes that you were not aware of, or some sort of ethical dilemma that pops up within work or family relations or within the church. What is your capacity? If you think of yourself in very dire circumstances, um, what is your capacity for moral courage and facing personal risk? Loss of opportunities, loss of income, loss of influence, loss of friendship, loss of reputation. I want to encourage you in the last note this way. Welcome to the gospel. You see, the capacity for moral courage comes through a faith that deceives and rests upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Therein is your capacity for courage. You're united to the Lord Jesus Christ in union who was made like us, tempted in every way, yet entirely without sin. He is our capacity for courage. And the other piece to the gospel, we receive him with an empty vessel of faith that permits rests upon him for no other than our Savior. The capacity to give the moral courage we often find we fail to achieve. Once again, welcome to the gospel. When we find that we fail in those moments of fulfillment, we fail in those shortcomings, the loss, it is, the risk is too high, we make moral failure. We fail to pursue what he requires and we pursue the things that he forbids. He also is our solution in the gospel. We receive Him yet again. We repent of our sins. We turn to Him in faith for the Lord and the nourishment. That is, by resting in Him through the empty vessel of faith, blessed, we are enabled 